Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well and to make them and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this day. Thank you for um, all the people that have gathered here for your name and to learn about you. Um, I just pray for Kevin. I pray that you would give him the words um, that you that he has prepared. Um, I pray that we would listen and that we would act upon what we are convicted of. Um, I just pray that we would be witnesses in light in this dark world. Um, I pray that you would um, let us walk faithfully for you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 4. Um, Derek said that I was going to give you guys a spiel about the covenant. I'm not going to do that. Just stick around afterwards, and I'll give you a full spiel about the covenant uh, and, the, and the membership meeting, uh, simply because um, my voice is leaving, and I don't want to do anything else to kill it. So, <laughs> um, plus, I, my kid's got a soccer game this afternoon, and I fully intend on yelling during that game, and I'd like to have a little bit of my voice left. Um, so anyway, thank you guys for being here. I uh, appreciate you guys being here this morning. I know we're where for you students, we're rounding into, you know, the, the fear of exams are looming ahead. Uh, so glad to see you guys this morning. Uh, thanks for coming to worship with us. Um, this morning, uh, we've seen over the course of the last couple weeks, especially last week, kind of this major shift uh, in, in, the, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And... Um, uh, you know, kind of what we've been saying is that in, in chapters, you know, one, two, and, in, and into chapter three, um, we've seen Paul kind of building towards what we saw last week, right? And so in, in Romans one through three, if we kind of said like, you know, here's the theme, here's what we're looking at, here's what we expect, here's what we saw is, is here's the summary. You and I together, collectively, as, a, as human beings, um, have a problem. And that problem is that we are sinful and rebellious towards God and that we're far worse off than we, we tend to want to give credit to ourselves for. That, that, that frequently uh, you and I are, are struggle heavily with worshiping creation rather than creator and worshiping self over God. And you know, as, as Paul kind of built through that argument, he kind of finished by saying that we all stand before God guilty, deserving of his wrath. 
That's, that's what we've kind of seen building up over the course of those two chapters. And then when we get to verse 21, which is where we were last week working through the rest of chapter 3, we saw this. Paul starts verse 21 of Romans chapter 3 saying, but now. And then he tells us this, right, that justification is by faith in Christ alone. That that justification, and I, we, we talked about last week how justification is this legal term meaning to be declared righteous, meaning that you and I, as we stand before God, if we are by faith in Christ alone, you and I are declared not guilty, that we're not just forgiven, but that the sin has been done away with because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. That, and when, and when I tried to kind of get this point across last week that many of us talk about the forgiveness of God as if it's the greatest thing, but we don't talk about the justification of God towards us in Christ and that justification is so much better than forgiveness. That forgiveness is just to be pardoned, right? It's like, okay, I don't hold your transgression against me any longer. Justification is being treated as if you never sinned, that you never rebelled, that when God looks at you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are in him, if you are his disciple, that God looks at you and it's as if you never rebelled against him in the first place. And that the beauty of the cross is that sin was done away with and that In that moment, God was both just because the punishment for sin was satisfied, but God was also justifier because his sin was offered up as he offered himself up, excuse me, for our sin. That God had done in that moment what no one else could do. And so the question that's naturally going to arise, right, because Paul has been building and building and building and telling us how sinful and rebellious we are and how God's wrath has pointed towards us, and then he gets to this point where he says God has justified you in Christ. He anticipates, as he's done throughout this entire letter, some questions, some, some pushback, some, some people saying, I'm not with you, Paul. I'm not, I'm not tracking with you. I don't believe that, that God will justify us in this way. And so the major question he asks as we start moving into Romans chapter 4 is how? How can God do this? How can this really be the way? How can Gentiles who haven't known anything about God suddenly be made righteous? How can Jews who've had the law be told that the law doesn't save them and then suddenly still be made righteous? Right, as he said last week, by faith, right, by faith. And, and that the faith itself is not what saves us, but the faith in what we have faith in is what saves us. Right, faith in Christ, right. People will say, faith saves you. No, faith does not save you. Christ saves you and your faith in him is the vehicle for that. Right, Jesus is the one that does the saving, not your faith. The moment you start believing your faith is the object of salvation, you start making faith into some sort of works-based system. You run to your faith and start measuring it in ways that God does not demand of you. And so, you know, Paul anticipates these questions. They're going to ask questions like, what do you mean I'm saved by faith in Jesus' finished work? I don't have to obey? What do I have to do then? Right, and it's not about following 
some work or set of rules, but understanding and observing a fundamental shift in your way of thinking. So, so track with me here for a second, okay? That faith is not a work, but a fundamental shift in your way of thinking and relating towards God, where you move from knowing about God, from maybe knowing some concepts about him or some information centered around following him, to knowing God with full assurance that in Christ Jesus, you can place your hope and trust that what he did on the cross was sufficient for you. It's from knowing about Jesus Christ to knowing that Jesus Christ is in fact your savior and what he did was sufficient. That all your hope and your trust is placed upon him, right? If you throw up Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, right, we have this famous passage, right, on what faith is, right? And the author of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? God has not given me a written receipt that I have tangibly have in hand that says you are no longer held guilty for your sin. He has, however, given me the gift of the Holy Spirit, but that's something we can't necessarily see, right? But I am convinced that because of Christ's finished work, right, I have convicted and assured that I am justified before the Father because of what Christ has done, right? That is what faith is. Right? It's, a, it's a, an assurance, it's a, it's a conviction, it's a knowing of things that cannot be fully known outside of just having the hope and the faith and the trust in God. And so Paul in our text today is going to be talking about faith, but he's going to be kind of in, in reality trying to prove to the Jewish audience that God has always operated in this way. That justification towards God has always been through faith in God. That, that no one that has ever been saved pre-Christ or post-Christ has ever been saved upon their own merit. And, and so Paul's saying he knows, right? He knows his Jewish audience, right? Paul grew up right, as, as a Jew, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he grew up, right, knowing the law, that as he became older, he worked with the Jewish Sanhedrin, was, which was the religious elite of his day, that in being in community with them, he knew how Jews thought, and their immediate response is going to be, how can you tell me that by faith in what Jesus did, I am justified before God when we have the law and we've seen thousands of years of faithful men and women in our Jewish national heritage love God and love God well? How can you tell me then all of a sudden that God has changed the game plan? And Paul's response is, God hasn't changed the game plan. This is the way that God has been saving people from the beginning. That God has been choosing and saving on the basis of their trust in him from the outset. And he's going to give us two major examples. He's going to say Abraham, and he's going to show us David. Right? The, the cream of the crop for Jews. The, the two men that in their national history and heritage, they probably love the most. And this is a big deal, right? Imagine this for a second, right? If you have a major political debate going on about the direction of politics in the United States, and, and what do people always love to do when they're debating politics? 
They like to bring up what, you know, George Washington would have thought about what he sees as if they know him personally, right? Or as if George Washington in some way has written a dissertation on what politics in the Middle East are supposed to look like in 2017, Right? But that's what we do, right? We look back in our history and we're nostalgic about it. And we look at people like James Madison who wrote the Constitution or Thomas Jefferson who penned the, the Declaration of Independence or George Washington who was the military commander of the, the United States military as they fought against right, the, the, the rule of Great Britain right? and then became the first president of the United States. We look back to these founding fathers and we're like, well, what would they want in this situation? Right? Wasn't, it, wasn't it this way that they did things? And so what Paul is doing is trying to convince Jewish religious convictions that they have misinterpreted how God relates with his people for thousands of years. That's, that, that is the task that he has set before him, that, that the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that much of what Israel knows to be true about God and how they relate with him has been misinterpreted from the scriptures over the course of the last couple of thousand years, right? Not, not an easy task to take, and yet he's right. Because let's look at the text, right? Look, start, starting in verse 1, what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his do, right? So he starts off and says, what, what shall we say? How, should we, how shall we view our entire history, Israel? How are we supposed to approach this idea that salvation belongs to God and that we are justified by faith in Christ? How do, how do we view Abraham? How do, what, do we, what do we look at him as, right? He's the father of our faith. How do, how do we look at him? How, should, how then should we view his works and his relationship to God in the Old Testament? Like, you know, wasn't Abraham saved by the, the beautiful things that he had done? Right? Didn't God choose him based upon his merit? And Paul's going to respond with, if we believe that Abraham was acceptable before God because of his works, maybe even his amazing works of faith, then we will believe that Abraham has something to boast in. That we will believe that Abraham was something special and that God chose him. And, and by the way, this is what Israel believed, guys. They believed that Abraham was someone super special and someone to boast in. That by looking at his life, he was someone to emulate. They, they, they believed that by looking at Abraham's life, that Abraham could say, look at me, God. You picked me because of the amazing person I am. And Paul says, not before God. Not before God does Abraham have one thing to boast in other than God himself. That Abraham has nothing to boast in in regards to his own works, his own performance, even his own faith. Because God chose him as the father of Israel and his works had nothing to do with it. Think about that for a second. That if you understand the Genesis account of the story of Abraham who was the father of Israel, that Abraham did nothing special to merit God's favor. 
Now, now how can we know this is true? Let me, let me give you two examples, okay? Here's two examples on why we probably give Abraham way too much credit. Or you, if you guys want to relate to something that you give your own spiritual mentor or hero in the faith too much credit. But let's use Abraham as our example here because it's in the text, right? Let's examine first Abraham's life, okay? So let's start with his good works, right? And early in Genesis, right, you have God coming before Abraham, and you see that Abraham is told to leave his family and leave the Ur of the Chaldeans and just go out to the land that God will show him. Great act of faith, right? Beautiful moment for Abraham. He leaves financial security, military security, and familial and relational security to just leave and go out to this place that he feels like God is telling him to go, right? Round of applause, Abraham, right? Brilliant moment of faith. Right? We see later on that, that he trusts God when the angels appear before him and are heading to Sodom to destroy Sodom, that he trusts God's perfect plan in that moment and yet also trusts God to save his family in Sodom. He, he says, Lord, if you find anyone that will repent and believe, you know, will, will you spare the city? And, right, and God promises over and over again, yes, I will. And you see that God trusts, that Abraham trusts in God in that moment. Right, we can see that Abraham believed in God right, when God promised him a son. He said, yep, God, I believe. I believe it's going to happen. Even in my old age, I believe that you're going to make me a father of many nations. We see that, that Abraham trusted in God even when God asked him to sacrifice his own son Isaac on an altar. That Abraham was willing to climb the mountain and sacrifice Isaac on that mountain to God, that he believed that God would still keep the promise of a son in many nations even if he sacrificed Isaac. So you look at that, right? And these are the things that Israel celebrates and they look at Abraham and they say, you know, of course Abraham has something to celebrate in. He's a great follower of God. Of course God chose him. Look at his faith. Look at all these amazing things he did. And yet, we forget these other parts. Right? Look, at these, look at the bad works of Abraham. Right? Abraham did not always lead and guide his family well, and that's being pretty kind. Right? Lot, in particular, who lived with him, he then sent away and then didn't check in on him at all and let Lot's family go completely crazy in Sodom. Did not lead Lot at all. Maybe more damning would be this, that twice... Abraham literally sold his wife, Sarah, to another man. That out of fear, and out of uh, fear of being killed or put to death, that he called Sarah his sister instead of his wife and gave his wife to another man. Twice he did that. Then we see that in the midst of that great moment of faith where he trusts God to provide a son for him, what does he do? He sees that the promise isn't, being fulfilled in the time period that he wants. And so he listens to his wife and they concoct this plan and he sleeps with his wife's servant, Hagar, to have a a son with her instead. Because God, maybe that's how God wanted the promise to come to pass. And so we see the good of Abraham and we see the bad of Abraham. Just like everyone in this room, where we could sit in here and list out the good and list out the bad. But if we are going to list out the good and then we are going to list out the bad, here is what is true. If Abraham is judged based upon his works, he would be found guilty before God because he sinned and rebelled and trusted in himself on multiple occasions instead of trusting in God. Even if he had these grand moments of faith that we talked about. 
that he stands condemned before a holy and just God the same way that each and every single one of us are, according to what Paul has argued about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Now, if that's not enough to convince you, right, look at what Paul says in verse 3 of Romans 4. He says, for what does the Scripture say? If you don't like our argument over just analyzing Abraham's life, if you think we're being too harsh, let's just see what the Scripture says. Abraham believed God and what? It was counted to him as righteousness. That word counted, some, some translations will say credited, is this, this term in the Greek, logizomai, right? And what it means, it's an accounting term, and it means to, to credit a status that was not there before. Okay, so how many of you guys in this room have debt of some type? Right, okay, about half the room, right? You students, you don't realize how great Bright Futures is. Right, if, if I was in Virginia right now and I asked people to raise their hand, like 90% of the room would raise their hand. Right? And so, so for those of you that have debt in the room, this is how this term works out. Right? If, as, as Paul's saying here, right, as he's quoting Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, he's saying when God looked at Abraham, because Abraham believed God and trusted in him, God gave him debt forgiveness. That, that even though Abraham couldn't pay back the debt, that even though Abraham was guilty before God, that God treated him as if he had obeyed. That's what that word means. That when God counted to Abraham and his faith as righteousness, because God had placed his, because Abraham had placed his trust in God alone, that God looked on Abraham at that moment and treated him as if he had obeyed even though he had not. He looked at Abraham and, and said, you have fully trusted me in all things even though Abraham had not. That, that is what saved Abraham. It wasn't, his, it wasn't his grand gestures of faith. It wasn't the amazing things he had done over the course of his life. It was because he knew that God was able and he trusted that God was able and God therefore declared him righteous because God is able to declare him righteous. Now, how, how does this work out in our lives, right? What, what is Paul trying to get across here? He's saying, look, Israel, saving faith in God has always been the plan. That Abraham believed God would save. He believed God would provide the way to extend his family lineage. And he trusted in God. And guess what? God did. Abraham didn't do anything special to create his family lineage. God made it happen. That Abraham's family line through Isaac is a miracle, a supernatural miracle of God. And that salvation for Abraham was achieved by God's work, not Abraham's. And that Abraham simply trusted. Guys, here, here's some things we need to continually remind ourselves when we live in a works-based culture and society. That the Bible teaches you and I that some, some important things about what trusting in Jesus Christ means and what it doesn't mean. 
right? Salvation, first and foremost, is not by works. Most of us would agree that if we grew up in the church. We've heard that over and over again. Like, my works don't save me. I'm not saved by my works. I'm not saved by my good deeds. But here's what else salvation by grace through faith also means, or what it doesn't mean. Salvation by faith and works is not what Scripture teaches. That you are not saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross and your works. Right? Jesus plus something else equals nothing. That we come to God before him and we lay the finished work of Christ before him for our assurance of salvation. If you go before God, right, if you're in a courtroom and you stand before God and God's like, you know, what is it, evangelism explosion that teaches us that if we're sharing our faith with someone, we, the first question we ask is, why would God let you in heaven? Like, what, what, what basis should God let you in heaven? And, and most of us, right, we would say, oh, well, Jesus. But then we might also say, I've been a really good Christian since I came to know Christ. The second half of that sentence means nothing. That you are fully accepted before the Father because of the finished work of Christ. Salvation by faith plus works equals nothing. But here's the last thing and maybe the more subtle way that I think we misunderstand what it means to be in Christ. Many of us say, well, yeah, I know my works don't add anything to, this, to, to the finished work of Christ. But we would live our lives like this. That we view salvation by faith as a work that you believe your faith gets measured on some scale of being good enough or acceptable to the Father. Well, I, don't have, I don't have enough faith, so, so, so I, don't, I don't have enough faith to trust in God in this situation, so God doesn't love me. You know what one of the most fascinating lines in all of Scripture is to me? As Jesus is walking through the towns, right, a father comes before Jesus and says, please heal my daughter. Right, and Jesus says, you know, if you believe it will be so. And what is that man's response? Father, I believe, help my unbelief. He simultaneously is smart enough to realize that he believes that Christ is the only hope for his daughter and simultaneously believes, I don't really believe it. And what does Christ do? In his mercy... He heals the man's daughter. That if you, if you and I are judged by some level of whether we have enough faith or not, no one will be saved. If you are responsible in any way for whether God accepts you into his kingdom or not, you will not make it. It's solely by the finished work of Christ and you believing that it's sufficient that saves you. Faith is trust and God's ability to do what you can't do. That Christ kept the law and appeased the wrath of God for our sin. You cannot do that, but God did do that. Now, so Paul says, look, I know, I know Israel that you're having some problems with these things that I'm saying. I know that you're having a hard time believing that you are not responsible 
for earning justification. I know that that's hard for you to hear. It's hard for us to hear as Americans, right? We're like, we, we do everything, right? We get into school. We get jobs, right? We provide for our families, right? We, we take care of people. We do all these different things, and yet we stand before God and says, you can't do it. Only Christ can. Paul says, look, I, I know you're struggling with this, but this is how God has operated from the outset, right? Look to Abraham. He's like, and if you don't believe me, look at David. Right? Look at Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from Psalms here. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Right? David is speaking of being declared righteous before God. And here's how he says it happens, right? He says that he's forgiven. He says in the next part of verse 7 that his sins are covered by God. And then in verse 8, he says that the Lord will not count his sin. Guess what word is used there? That same word that is used in verse 3, lagitzomai. That his sin is not credited, not counted towards him. Now think about this for a second, right? The two examples that Paul is using, Abraham, the father and the creator in some ways from a human perspective of the nation of Israel, and David, the greatest king that Israel ever had seen. If you want to talk about talented, gifted people to revere, David was a gifted military commander. He was a gifted leader. He was a gifted king. He was a gifted diplomat. And yet, where is David's boast when it comes to justification? By his own words in God alone. It's like, I didn't do anything to earn God's favor. Guys, if you know anything, what are the, probably the two most famous things about David? He was a king, and he had a man named Uriah murdered because he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. So probably the, the two most famous things we know about David. And yet, what does the scripture consistently say about who David is? He's a man what? After God's own heart. <laughs> you have the scripture saying, like, David's this great guy. Yeah. I don't know about you, but if you're a guy in here this morning and you're dating someone you're married, if your like best friend cheats with your girlfriend or your wife and then has you murdered, are you going to think that that guy's pretty spiritual? Like, I, I'm not going to use that terminology to describe him. Right? I, I, I read that story in Samuel and I'm like, uh, David's not such a good dude. <laughs> Actually, he's kind of trash. Right, like that sounds like something you would see on like, you know, Dateline or 2020, right? And like they're, they're getting ready to have the court case and like, you know, they're trying it in the court of public opinion trying to show like, dude, David's trash. Like, let's convict this guy. And yet the scriptures say, now David loved God. And you want to know how that is possible? Not because of David, but because of God. And David realizes that. That's why he says there, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. His own lawless deeds. <laughs> and those whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David's saying, I have nothing to boast in except in the mercy of God and his declaration of my righteousness because of what Christ has done. You're like, what are you talking about, Kevin? Like, how, how could David find his righteousness in Christ? Right, Jesus says oftentimes that Abraham looked forward to his coming. That the fathers and the heroes of the faith worshiped and rejoiced in knowing that Christ was coming to do what he did. And that's where their righteousness was found. If you want more information on that, read through the book of Galatians. It'll help prove some of that for you. Look at this last example that Paul's going to give, right? He said, look at, look, at, look, at, look at Abraham, look at David, right? Salvation has always been by faith in God, not, not by our works, not even in the Old Testament, not even by the Old Testament law. And look at what he says in verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, right? Because this is going to be a, an easy question to ask. Well, wait a minute. If salvation has always been by grace through faith, then, it, then you must still <laughs> have to be like, you know, s- part of spiritual Israel. Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let me, let me translate that down because Paul is saying a lot there. He's saying, look, this is not a new religion. This is not a new way of looking at God. That what God has accomplished for us in Christ is actually tied to the promise that God gave to the father of Israel, Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. It's completely tied to all of that. Think about this with me for a second, guys, because this is important, right? What we're talking about here is covenants and how covenants work. You might hear that term once in a while. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear it here in a little while because membership at Aletheia is called covenant membership. Okay, and, and here's what I want you to understand, that when we biblically talk about covenants, what we mean is that a promise is made by God. God promises that he will keep that promise, and then a sign is given. So let's talk about the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise that God gave Abraham was that you know, this random family member that he had in Damascus was not going to be his heir, but that his own son was going to be his heir. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. And then he continued that promise by saying that through you, right, you will be the father of many nations and all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's a pretty bold promise to a guy that doesn't have kids into his late 70s. And yet, 
Right? It says that Abraham believed and trusted him. Now, if you are familiar with what happens over the course of that story, God makes this promise to Abraham. Right? Now, if you guys know anything about law or contract law, here's how contracts work. Right? If, if you want someone to do work on your house, what you do is you enter into a contract with a, with a contractor who can do the work. And what happens is you sit down with that contractor, and let's say you're going to get new windows in your house. You sit down with that window contractor, and that contractor says, I will do the work. And I will put new windows into your home, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it for $8,000. Right? And then you sign an agreement right, to repay that contractor within a certain period of time for the work that they've done. And that is a contract. Covenants are different. Right? Covenants are made where a promise is given, and it's not based upon the performance of the other party. And so the way that this, co- this particular covenant with, with Abraham worked is, is here is what God says. Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to be the father of many nations, and through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, what would happen in a contract is that he, we would then, Abraham would then say, well, what do I need to do? Right? And they would sit there and they would barter back and forth over like what Abraham's portion of the contract would do. What happens in the account with Abraham? If you're familiar with the story, what, what is Abraham doing throughout all this? He's asleep. <laughs> right? God says, hey, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. Now go to sleep. And then, right, they have the animal cut in half, right? And the Spirit of God walks in between the animal that's cut in half. Here is what, here's what is happening in that moment. God is saying, if I don't follow through on my promise to you, Abraham, let what happened to that animal happen to me. Now, does Abraham walk in between that animal and say, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, God, let what happened to that animal happen to me? No, man, the, the guy's asleep. He's out. <laughs> right? The promise for this covenant solely falls on God, not on the performance of Abraham. And then it says that Abraham believed him, and he's declared as righteous. Now, what, what came from that then? God said, okay, because you have believed upon me, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to be circumcised. I want your family to be circumcised. I want your followers to be circumcised as a sign of, that you believe in the promise that I've given you. Has Abraham been circumcised yet? No. And yet what frequently happened to Israel is they believed that their religious performance and being circumcised and following these rules was what made them acceptable towards God. And Paul is saying, look guys, not even the father who you learned from that you needed to be circumcised was circumcised before he was declared righteous. That God declared him righteous because God had promised that he would through his covenant. And then as a sign of that promise and that faith, then Abraham was circumcised. Guys, this should give you and I great hope. That one, God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. And most of us in this room, I would imagine, have Gentile blood flowing through us like crazy. Right? My ancestors, right? Well, well, if you have Jewish ancestors in the room, your, your ancestors were more than likely worshiping the true God. My ancestors, Thor. Right? Like spiritualism in Northern Europe, right? Running around trees thinking that the trees had done something. Right? That, that's, that's my spiritual heritage. And yet, the God 
of the universe saw fit thousands of years ago not to just adopt one people group, but to adopt his entire creation by grace through faith and promised to Abraham that he would do so. That you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, are the spiritual heritage that what, of what God did in Genesis chapter 15. That you are a part of that spiritual family. A part of that covenant promise. That God would do the work and that even our religious traditions, signs, and sacraments are meant to honor him for what he's already done, not save us. What a gift that Paul shares with us by explaining this to us. To understand that this righteousness from God is given and granted to us, not based upon our merit, but because he chooses us and Christ performed for us. That Abraham is our example, not on how to live a life to earn God's trust, but in how to respond to God's promises to us. That any obedience that Abraham displays after God has made this covenant with him is a response of his faith, not a justification of his faith. Let me give you a modern day example. Right? Because in 2017 as a church, we do all sorts of kind of things that are supposed to kind of be disciplines that fan our faith in God. Right? And, and probably the easiest one to compare to circumcision would be baptism. Right? That if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be baptized. If you have not been baptized and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I will be around here somewhere and I would love you to come talk to me because we need to get you baptized. Okay? But probably the, the biggest example or the, the thing we can see, right, as a, as a kind of correlation or parallel would be baptism. Baptism is even called the new circumcision in the scriptures as a sign. Right, if you look at Romans chapter 12, which we studied at, you know, about a month and a half ago, we see that Paul says that circumcision, though, the act of circumcision didn't save but that what saved was the circumcision of the heart. That it was a, not the physical act of obeying right, what Abraham had done that saved Jews, but that a, a circumcision of the heart was necessary. And then if you go to Colossians chapter 2, right, Paul says that baptism is a sign of the spiritual circumcision that occurs at the moment of salvation. Some of you guys are like, what the heck are you talking about? Right? Here's what Paul's trying to say in Colossians chapter 2. That baptism is an outward sign, symbol, or reflection of what has already occurred internally when you have trusted in Jesus Christ as being the only thing sufficient for your salvation. That your heart in that moment has been circumcised and that there's something supernatural going on where your trust in yourself alone has been cut away and replaced by faith in Christ alone. That there's this spiritual outpouring going on in that moment. And that baptism, just like circumcision, does not save us, but is an outward sign and display of what God has done. 
That when you are baptized, right, what, what is going on in that moment is we, you know, some of you guys have been here when we've done baptisms, right? We, we pull people down in the water and we pull them back out. And what's being, you know, kind of shown in that moment? That you're buried with Christ and you died to self in that moment when you trusted in Christ. And then just as Christ was raised from the dead, you are now alive as well in him, pulled from the waters of baptism. It's a sign. Now, now guys, here's the thing. Over the course of time, guess what's happened? Weird theology on baptism. Just like, just by like, the time we get to, to, to Paul, weird theology of circumcision had arose. Right? There are people that believe there's something special about the water in baptism. If you've been baptized at Aletheia, you've either been baptized in dirty pool water or dirty hose water in a horse trough. I have done no special, special ritual. I haven't ordered any special water from some catalog of spirituality. Right, to make that happen. It's water. Right? I was baptized on a 20 degree night in a hot tub. Fantastic when I got in. The moment I got out, my jeans literally were frozen stiff and I couldn't get them off. Nothing special about that water. Because what was going on in that moment was simply a reflection and a celebration of what God had already done internally. Because the reality is, is like, there's all sorts of strange things. Like, people believe that there's like, you know, some sort of special water to be baptized. Some, some of you guys have grown up in traditions where you've been told that baptism was necessary for salvation. Let me give you a hint. Baptism is necessary for salvation, but not water baptism. Right? Being baptized into Christ <laughs> is necessary for salvation, not being baptized into water. Right? Those that will tell you that if you haven't been baptized, you're not saved, they believe in something that's called baptismal regeneration, it is heresy. Run. It's a method or a way to control you. It is not what the scripture teaches. As we see right here, right here in this very passage, the only thing that can save you and I from our, from our sin and God's wrath is the finished work of Christ. Nothing else. And that is achieved not through baptism, but by faith in him alone. And so, here's the thing though. Because right? here, here tends to be what we do when we get to these moments. We're like, well, oh, Okay, Kevin's saying that baptism doesn't save me or whatever else. And yet we do all these different things. This doesn't mean these things aren't important. Baptism has an important place. Communion does not save you. Right, we take communion every week at Aletheia, but that act does not save you. Prayer does not save you. Right, reading your Bible does not save you. But it doesn't mean we do these things because here's the reality. If you are a follower of Christ, God has given us these things to do so that they might create in us a greater worship of him. You and I exist for the glory of God. Nothing else. Baptism is done to bring glory to God. Communion is done to bring glory to God. Prayer, both in private and corporately, is done to bring glory to God. Worship on a Sunday morning is not for you, but for the glory of God. That in all of these things, we have this sweet reminder from Paul that God has not changed over the course of time, but has always been counting men and women as righteous 
based upon his performance, not theirs, and their faith in him. We're gonna take communion here in just a second, guys. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to, <laughs> to think about two things. One, remember that that communion does not save you. But what that communion represents is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And that you need not go to God in prayer trying to earn his favor or love because Christ purchased it on the cross for you already. And that as you take communion, it is not an act of brokenness. It is not an act of you coming up here and saying, God, I'm gonna do better this week than I did the week before. It's you walking up here and saying, God, Father, thank you for your son. That because of him, I am forgiven and loved in you. And I take this bread and this juice as an act of worship, thanking you for your son. Forgive me of my sins and help me to walk forward in obedience and joy so that I might worship you. Do that for me so that you might see a greater worship both in your own heart and in this church so that we might make much of the only one who is worthy to be made much of, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are worthy and no one else is. Father, thank you that even the spiritual heroes in our lives, like Abraham and David, ultimately point us to the true hero, which is your son, Jesus Christ. As great as we may view people like Augustine, like Abraham, like David, like the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or my own personal favorite, Charles Spurgeon, that their lives are simply there to point us to the one who is worthy to be worshipped, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to worship you and you alone by your Son. Father, thank you for this time. May we finish it in worship to you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.